Welcome to the Radio Bible Chorus and our study of Hebrews chapter 2. Today we pick up with verse 11 in chapter 2, but I'm going to begin reading at the beginning of a paragraph, which begins with verse 10. It reads, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, have all one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will praise thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children God has given me. These, of course, are Old Testament quotations which are intended to convey the family relationship between Christ and those who belong to him. Now, verse 11 is a difficult passage. Listen again. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one origin. There are several views as to the meaning of this. One of them is that we are one in Adam because Jesus became a man, yet he was very different from all men. As a mediator, he didn't stand with man before God. You know, the Bible tells us he stood between men and God. He's the mediator between God and man. Nor was he a sinner like those of Adam's race. He was totally without sin. Now, he was with men, but he never followed men. He told them where the fish were located, but he did never join them in fishing. He prayed for them, but surprisingly, never in the Bible do you find it recorded that Jesus prayed with them. Now, there's another view, and I prefer this as to what this passage means when it says they are all of one origin. The oneness here, I believe, is spiritual. And Jesus prayed this way in John chapter 17, shortly before his crucifixion. The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may become perfectly one. I think this speaks of a spiritual oneness, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Not that he is like us, but that we are one with him through faith, and nothing more than faith, I should add. Now, in verse 12, we get the first of a series of Old Testament passages to support this family relationship. And the first one is in verse 12. I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will praise thee. This is from Psalm 22, that messianic psalm, and it happens to be verse 22. Who is speaking? The psalmist is speaking here, representing the Savior. He's the same one who spoke at the beginning of that psalm in verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Clearly, it's a messianic psalm. And the author here, 
follows the Septuagint translation. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which was very popular in the first century. And it translates congregation from the Greek word ecclesia. Now, most of us have heard of ecclesia. It refers to us, the church. The author applies that Old Testament passage to the church, even though when it was written there was no church. When Christ was on earth, he proclaimed the Father's name and the Father's word to his brethren, brethren after the flesh. They rejected him. And now the Savior seems to be speaking here prophetically through that same Old Testament passage when he writes, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. And we are those brethren, we who have believed in him. He calls us his brethren. Now, in verse 13, we have another statement, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 8. And again, I will put my trust in him. Historically, this statement may refer to Isaiah's rejection as he preached to the people of Israel. They ignored his message. Instead of trusting in God, they trusted in men, in the arm of flesh, and in those with whom they could make alliances. Now, so... It was with Jesus when he came on the scene. He too was rejected by Israel, but he was trusting in the Father. And so it's written, I will put my trust in him. And again, and here's the third passage at the end of verse 13, and again, here am I and the children God has given me. It's interesting that this is quoted from Isaiah 8. 18, whereas the first part of the verse was from Isaiah 8:17, And why did the writer to the Hebrews separate these two passages? We can't be sure, but it appears to be that the first part of verse 13, I will put my trust in him, refers to Jesus, whereas the next part, here am I and the children God has given me, refers to him and his children, the church. You see, the Old Testament foretold both Jesus and those who would be called his sheep. We are the sheep following our shepherd. We are the children of the one who purchased us. We are the redeemed. He is the Redeemer. The writer to the Hebrews seems intent on convincing his readers that they belong to Jesus Christ, that they have a relationship. They are children that God has given to Christ. This is a unique expression because it tells us that God is revealing that we are children of Jesus. Other writers of the New Testament talk about children of God, sons of God, but never children of Jesus. But that's what we find here at the end of verse 13. Now, before we move on to verse 14, I want to take you back to verse 11. What did he mean by origin? For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one origin. This could be translated all of one source instead of origin. And what is the source of Jesus and what is the source of those who belong to Jesus? The Father. The Father sent the Son. The Father was responsible for the incarnation of Jesus and the Father is responsible for our salvation. He is the one 
who has drawn us to him by his Spirit. He is the one who has given us eternal life and allowed us to be partakers of that life of Jesus Christ. So the Father here is our source of life. Now moving on to verse 14, the writer writes, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. For surely it is not with angels that he is concerned, but with the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make expiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus became like his children, flesh and blood, not just a spirit. And perhaps the writer mentioned this, because there was that philosophy abroad, it was just beginning in that first century, that Jesus did not really have a body, he was only a spirit. He was like a phantom. We know that false teaching about Jesus as Gnosticism, but here he wants to make sure that his readers understand that Jesus became just as we are. And he came here to redeem flesh and blood. In order to do that, he had to become flesh and blood. Now why? To win victory over death. Death came by sin, and death passed on to all men. So we need a redeemer from sin and a redeemer from death. One could only redeem if he became a man like us. But this passage does not restrict the death of Jesus Christ to a life-giving purpose, but rather to a destroying purpose. He wanted to destroy the power of death and the one who is behind it, the devil. Now the word destroy does not mean annihilate. It means to destroy the power of someone. Jesus, by dying, defanged the serpent. Now, I wouldn't be afraid of rattlesnakes. I can stand the rattle, but I can't stand the fangs and the poison that would enter my body if I were bitten by a rattlesnake. What Jesus did then is took away the power of the devil, the serpent. And the result should be that you and I who believe in Jesus Christ should no longer fear the evil one. Oh, he can get us into trouble, but he no longer is the one who will decide whether we have life or death. He brought in sin, and he brought in death in the beginning. And even though we die today, Christians die, does that mean the devil is victorious? Not at all. Because our death, the Bible refers to as a sleep. It's a kind and a gentle word, and it's called sleep. Not because our souls are sleeping, for the Bible tells us that when we die and are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. Then why use the word sleep? Because we will be awakened, just as certain as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, 
so will we be raised from the dead. We'll hear the voice of our Master. There'll be that trumpet someday. It will awaken the dead. There'll be the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise. Well, if they're going to rise, they must have been sleeping. And that's one of the reasons why the New Testament writers use that kind and gentle word for death. Men are haunted by the fear of death. But those who have believed in Jesus have passed from death into life. But not everyone has life, unfortunately. Those who refuse to believe in the giver of life and the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, they do not have life. They are prisoners of Satan. His victory over mankind is the grave. Man who is made to live forever goes to a grave. That's Satan's power. But those who have believed in Jesus Christ are not under the power of Satan. He has no power over the destiny of those who are born of God. How does a person get this birth from God? You may be asking yourself, do I have this birth from God? Remember that Jesus emphasized that unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How does one get this birth? Listen to the Apostle John. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Believe in the Savior, the one God sent to rescue you. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.org.